It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. For those of you that have been sort of following uh, my Daily Thunders, because I do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sundays, I've been going through a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II. And for those of you that aren't, uh, don't have a hankering for history or a fascination in war, you'd be like, well, that sounds boring. It's been very, very powerful. And because it's about spir- the spiritual dimension of our lives, because we're in a sense in World War II. You might as well just say it that way. We are in the midst of a battle. And those of you that are students here, you can attest to the fact, this is all out war when you stand for truth. It is a strange thing, but you, you quickly begin to understand the realities of the unseen realm when you stand up for truth. When you believe in Jesus, you recognize that there really is friction. So uh, this is part 16. It is called the Darlin Conspiracy. The way that uh, Darlin is pronounced in French, because this is a French name, sounds, I remember, all of you that do know French know that I'm not very good at it, uh, but it's like Darlin, Darlin, uh, it's sort of like the R uh, gets lost somehow in there, but I, if I try and say it correctly uh, with some French accents, you guys are just going to make fun of me, so I might just say Darlin, okay, and then just be very English, American about it. So a quick review, in Wednesday's edition, we were talking about the Bordeaux Collapse, so to give you a little background of where we're at in the war, and I've skipped around a little, uh, and you know because technically I gave a message called air superiority way back when, but that hasn't even happened in the war yet. That's going to happen, at the, the Battle of Britain is going to happen right after this. But uh, Nazi Germany has grown large, and the reason it's grown large is because the Allied forces have done nothing. They actually had the legal authority to keep Germany in its place. Germany was not even allowed to have a military. They were allowed to have a 100,000 standing army. They had to shrink after World War I from 6 million soldiers down to 100,000. In other words, they were being inhibited from being able to even grow up a military strength ever again. However, when Hitler began to push on that, and he began to grow, and uh, his military, the Allies did nothing, because they didn't want war. And then when he took uh, the Rhineland, which is a portion of Germany that he was not allowed to have soldiers in, and he put his soldiers in it, uh, they did nothing. When he took Austria, they did nothing. When he took the Sudetenland and then Czechoslovakia, they did nothing. And finally, they did something when he invaded Poland. It's like, okay, I guess that's enough. Maybe we should do something, which is the start of World War II. And so, as a result, Hitler has become strong. In fact, he's arguably the strongest military force in the world right now, and he shouldn't even have any military. And so, what has happened? And that's oftentimes what can happen to us. Jesus defeats the enemy at the cross. The enemy is defeated. I mean, it's, it's very clear. It is finished. Everything that is required for the church of Jesus Christ to function and live with authority has been given to us. And yet what you see is it's almost like we let go of our sword. We give up that position that we have, and the enemy looks and goes, they're not doing anything. And he begins to mount an offensive against us and puts us as the church in a defensive position instead of a position of strength, which is what we see in the entire story of World War II. So Nazi Germany, for the, I'm German, so I can say that. For any of you that are hearing this, you know, this is your first session in here, it's sort of like, this guy is really, he, he seems to be likening Nazi Germany to evil, to darkness, to Satan. Yep, 
<laughs> I am. I said that in the very beginning. It's a great picture of it. It is all out evil. It is a very, very wicked regime. It doesn't mean everyone in Germany at the time is that way. However, this regime led by Hitler is, is wicked. And so as a result, they're symbolic. Uh, and I'm not going to try and defend Great Britain and say, oh, their purity, their righteousness. They're a good picture of the saints of God. They're, they're full of all sorts of problems. And they have a, a, a propensity toward passivity. They don't want war, and they, they would almost rather give the enemy territory. But then when it comes down to it, they rise up. And that's what we've been appealing to this whole time. There's something in us that needs to sort of play the role of Great Britain in this, that needs to be willing to stand up all alone against this evil menace and say, I'm standing my ground now. I don't know what I was doing in the past, that whole Munich pact, why I was giving you territory, Hitler, but it stops now. And that in each of our souls needs to be the characterization of us. Yeah, maybe we were pushovers. Maybe. But the day is come and we're going to stand our ground and we're going to push back. We are not going to let evil take over our soul. We are going to resist the devil. And guess what? That devil must flee. So June 16, 1940, we were talking about what happened in France where there was a collapse, where the, the French leadership recognized that, they, that the military of France could not hold up the, the defense against this onslaught of Germany. So Germany had taken Poland, then it took Denmark, then it took Norway, and then it swooped into Holland, uh, Belgium, and into France. And France has fallen fast. And so the leadership is going to make a choice. Either they're going to fight to the death, or they're going to start negotiating with Hitler. And this is a key thing, and it's going to be, I called it on Wednesday, the Bordeaux Collapse. So they're meeting in Bordeaux, France. They moved from their, their capital city of Paris down to Bordeaux. So the government is now in Bordeaux, and they're trying to make a decision. The leader of the government is like, let's fight to the end. So what do they do? They kick him out. We don't want a guy that says, let's fight to the end. We want to negotiate peace. And so that's what's called the Patan government. Philip Patan is going to take the leadership of France and he's going to sell out France. Okay, there's, in fr all the historians and all the French people would agree with me. Patan, boo, what he's going to do here is going to betray France, and all of this little cluster, this cabinet with him, are basically going to become puppets in Hitler's hand, and they're going to be cheering on the Germans in the war and not the Allies. And because they're given this little puppet government called Vichy and it's a little sector of France and they're over it. So, wow, we just got power, we got control and Hitler will protect us. So suddenly they become traitors of France and that's the new government in France. So that's what's happened on June 16, 1940, Bordeaux, France. And so a bunch of self selfish men blew it. This is the propensity of each of our souls. We live in a generation where we understand political correctness, but many of us have never faced the buzzsaw of it up close and personal. Whereas if, if you, you stand for Jesus right now, it's gonna cost you. If you actually speak this right now, it could mean imprisonment. If you actually say that, it could mean your death. And so as a result, we don't know what it's really like. So we see these selfish men who are like, boo, hey guys, and we wanna throw a rotten tomato at them. It's like, what are you guys thinking? Yeah, well, they made a mistake. However, we all need to recognize that in the Bordeaux collapse is the same propensity that we have. That we prepare for such moments in the small decisions we make in life. There are so many things. If I were to go through a trajectory in my life of decisions that I have made, which lead me to even today to make decisions that are very different than the world around me. 
I make decisions all the time, and people are like, are you sure you want to do that? Yes. Like, you do know the consequences. I know the consequences. I'm doing this eyes wide open. Yes is my answer. And you go, how in the world do you make decisions that go so contrary? Like, this actually makes sense. What, the, what they're doing in Bordeaux, what Patan is doing, I mean, for all practical purposes, Hitler looks like he's going to win. And, you know, as they said, and uh, Great Britain's neck is going to be wrung like a chicken in three weeks. And if you think your only ally, which is Great Britain, is going down, and you know France is going down, well, peace terms make a lot of sense right about now. And the same thing is true for us. If it looks like the church is falling to pieces around us, and it looks like the powers of darkness and liberalism are creeping over this country, if you side with them, you could live in peace. But if you stand against them, boy, your life could be miserable. Imagine if you hear that they're setting up concentration camps for those that are <clears throat> remedial students, that don't quite get it, that haven't come to their senses yet. Well, that's all that most of us need. It's like, okay, what do I need to do to play the game? What do I need to do to pacify this government? That's exactly what you see in France, and all of us have the same propensity. It's just called political correctness. We want to be right with culture. We don't want to stand against it. Hey, look, I don't want to suffer in my body. I don't want to go through difficulty. So we need to recognize we have the same propensity, but we need to prepare now in our small decisions to set a course and a pattern of belligerence towards the enemy's regime in our life and his agenda. He wants to see us compromise. So in the small moments, we say no. When he says, hey, I want you to think on this thought, no. You see, that's actually the training ground. I want you to not speak to that person. The Spirit of God is like, speak to that person. And the devil's like, oh, if you do that, I mean, just think what they might think of you. Well, that's small potatoes next to life and death situations in the future. This is where we train. And so many of us have not taken advantage of our training. But that's why I'm always going to say, even to myself, because I've blown a lot of good training options in my life too. I mean, there have been moments when I have kept walking when I know I'm supposed to talk with something, someone. There's things that I knew I should have done and I didn't do them because of the awkward social nature of the situation. I kept going. Yep, guilty. At the same time, there's always mercy in the kingdom of heaven. There's always the opportunity to turn from that and do it right the next time. And that's what I love about the kingdom of heaven. There's always hope. You see, when you feel conviction, it is never to drive you into you know, eternal judgment and condemnation. It is to save you from doing the same thing again. So you feel a conviction. You go, you know what? Spirit of God, you are right. This body is meant to do your work and not the enemy's bidding. So, Lord, here I am afresh. Give me another opportunity so we can do this right next time. So, blowing it. That's, that's my term for it in this message. This is something many men in history have done. You study the Bible, and there's quite a few men that blew it. <laughs> Gehazi, a guy who blew it. So, most people don't know about Gehazi. He was actually the servant to Elisha. And... There's really, you know, he, he does, he's a perfectly fine character, and then he just has a very bad ending. In other words, for all practical purposes, he's just a servant willing to hide in the shadows and bless the prophet of God. And then it comes down to it, and he's given an opportunity. He sees it. There's a sliver of light where he could become a rich man with his master's back turned. And what happens is the deceitfulness of riches gets Gehazi. 
And it's it's a story that includes the uh, S- Syrian general, uh, commander-in-chief of their armed forces, Naaman. And Naaman, the Syrian, is a powerful man, a noble man, but he has leprosy. And so this servant from Israel is like working in their house, and she says, oh, if he could just meet the prophet of the Lord from Israel, he could be healed. And so he hear, Naaman hears that, and so they check into it, and uh, and Elisha hears what he says, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of that leprosy. The God in Israel is able to help you. So Naaman comes, and as the story goes, Elisha tells him to uh, bathe in the, the river and, and wash seven times, which Naaman thinks is totally ridiculous. But his servants beg him to try it, and he does it, and guess what? He's cleansed. And so he's just mystified. But Naaman has come, and he's willing to pay whatever it costs to get it. So he has a load of riches with him. I mean, it's almost like the wealth of Syria is in his cargo. And Elisha will not touch the wealth of Syria. He will not do his work for the king. He will not be bought. He will, this is not for sale. This is the work of the king. But that king is higher than the king of Syria. And so he will not be bought. Which you see all throughout. Abraham had the same type of situation where the, the king of Sodom is wanting to give him money. He says, I will not touch your money lest you think that you're the one that built up my family, my house. And so you see a similar thing happening here. But Gehazi is like in the shadows, he sees the cargo in the back. Like if this was a movie scene, you'd have some jingling coins and they'd fall out on the ground. And he's like, he's lusting after that wealth. So when his, his, his master's back is turned, he goes after Naaman and says, you know, that, that Elisha, you know, there's some prophets that came to town and they need, and, and my master told me to come to you and they need two talents of silver and a change of garments. And so Naaman's like, absolutely, here you go. And then Gehazi has a treasure. He has some contraband. It's like an Achan sin. He hides it in his tent. And uh, this is a guy, by the way, who blew it, okay? This is not a good decision. If any of you are thinking of running after Naaman's chariot, think again. (laughs) Elisha, where did you go, Gehazi? Gehazi, uh, your servant did not go anywhere. Lie. It doesn't say in Scripture lie. It does say the rest of the story, which I, I didn't write down here. Elisha, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. Well, that's not the ending we were looking for, right? The deceitfulness of riches. Isn't that a fascinating statement? The deceitfulness of riches. If you just had these riches, if you just had this peace, you would have what you need in life. Don't fall for it, people. What, Patan, what the Patan government is going to fall for is if you just give way to Hitler, you could have peace. You wouldn't have to fight, and you could actually be masters of your own future. Instead, they're going to be tried as traitors and killed after the war. Their end is terrible. You see, the end of a traitor, where you give way to earthly riches, earthly comfort, earthly pleasure, instead of standing for the truth in the one life that you have on this earth, it will cost you dearly. Judas, a guy who blew it. You think about this. Gehazi is a servant of Elisha. Elisha is the one who's receiving the double portion from Elijah as far as, I mean, this guy is in such an opportunity. I mean, you think about different places that you could be in life. Like, who would you like to serve? You know, if you could be the armor bearer of some man in history, I mean, Gehazi has a pretty good setup here. 
Judas is one of Jesus' favorites. I mean, even at the Last Supper, you're going to see on the, on the right hand and on the left hand, there's a seat of honor and a seat of friendship. Judas is one of them, okay? Now, we're going to guess because John was the other one that was leaning upon him, you know, at the Last Supper. But Judas is the other one on the other side, which means he was e- either in the position of honor or friendship. This is a high statement that is being made here to this man. He is one of the 12, one of the ones that's going to be given the gift of truth. He is going to be equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit and commissioned by the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, to go into this world and make disciples in his name. And he's going to blow it. He is going to see the jingle of riches. And it's going to literally take his gaze off of the commission that is so grand. And he is going to trade out his inheritance for a bowl of red stew. You do know I could have put Esau in here too. A man who blew it. So obviously you guys know the story of of Judas, but then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. He was numbered among the 12. What a privilege. And yet he chose riches over Jesus. And obviously we know that that didn't turn out so well. Demas, or Demos, a guy who blew it. <laughs> Don't you, isn't there something funny about saying the words blew it? I, that's why I put it in here. It just sounded fun. So the Apostle Paul, in another spot in one of uh, Paul's letters, you're going to recognize that Demas is a close associate of Paul. But then in, in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Wow. Isn't that an interesting thing to see that God is going to chronicle this in his eternal word and Demas gets as the picture, the final mindset of Demas in all of history is that he forsook Paul, the carrier of the gospel, the man willing to suffer affliction in this world because he loved this present world more. I mean, that's just not what you want. You do not want your name in scripture like this. This is a bad state. So I'm going to uh, go, and many of you know this story because you might have grown up with Pilgrim's Progress, but I'm going to read John Bunyan's take on Demas and this whole idea of the bait, the jingle of coins that falls out the back of the, uh, the, the cart. So then I saw in my dream that a little off the road, over against the silver mine, stood Demas. He was gentlemanlike to call to passengers to come and see, who said to Christian and his fellow, Ho, turn aside hither, and I will show you a thing. So Christian says, What thing so deserving as to turn us out of the way to see it? Demas says, Here is a silver mine and some digging in it for treasure. If you will come with a a little pains, you may richly provide for yourselves. Hopeful says, Let's go see. Christian says, Not I. I have heard of this place before now, and how many there have been slain. And besides that, treasure is a snare to those that seek it, for it hinders them in their pilgrimage. Boy, we're getting a lot of good information here already. This is good stuff. Then Christian called to Demas, saying, Is not the place dangerous? Has it not hindered many in their pilgrimage? And Demas says, Not very dangerous, except to those that are careless. But with all he blushed as he spoke. Then said Christian to Hopeful, Let us not stir a step, but still keep on our way. 
And Hopeful says, I will warrant you, when Bayens comes up, if he has the same invitation as we, he will turn in thither to see. And Christian says, no doubt thereof, for his principles lead him that way, in a hundred to one, but he dies there. Then Demas called again, saying, but will you not come over and see? Then Christian roundly answered, saying, Demas, you are an enemy to the right ways of the Lord of this way and have already condemned and you are, and have been already condemned for your turning aside by one of his majesty's judges. And why do you seek to bring us into the light condemnation? Besides, if we at all turn aside, our Lord and King will certainly hear thereof and will there put us to shame where we would stand with boldness before him. Demas cried again that he was also one of their fraternity, that if they would tarry a little, he also himself would walk with them. Then said Christian, what is your name? Is it not the same by which I have called you? Yes, my name is Demas. I am the son of Abraham. I know you. Gehazi was your great-grandfather and Judas your father, and you have trodden their steps. But it is but a devilish prank that you use. Your father was hanged for a traitor, and you deserve no better reward. Assure yourself that when we come to the king, we will do him word of this we will do him word of this your behavior. Thus, they went their way. Ooh. So obviously we see the gravity applied to this, that there is the jingle of coins off to the side. You know that this is always going to be in our life? It's the same thing that the Patan government was struggling with. They're seeing, in a sense, the jingle of coins. It's a little different, but it's peace. Yes, peace with compromise, but peace. And also... Position. If Patan would do this, he could gain and garner the position under Hitler. He would be, yes, he may be Hitler's puppet, but he would be in control of Vichy France. This is, this is something that is tantalizing. We always think, we, we look at Judas and we're like, what were you thinking? You could look at Demas. We're like, what were you thinking? You could look at Gehazi and go, what? Gehazi? And yet, we think the same thoughts oftentimes. You look at Ananias and Sapphira and you're like, guys, that was dumb. And yet if you analyze Ananias and Sapphira and we were to really crack you open and do some anal analysis, you'd recognize <laughs> what they're thinking is selfish thinking. We all have the propensity towards it. To think, how could I look good to the world? How could I maintain my own position? I could look like I'm very generous and everyone would applaud me, but I'll hold back a little, and they'll think I gave it all. Okay, this is how humanity works, not how Christians work. The reason why these stories are placed before us in Scripture is to say, come out from among them. Be ye separate. You see, we are being called out of selfishness into Christianity, which is the exact opposite of what Gehazi, Judas, Demas are doing. And in this case, the exact opposite of what Admiral Francois Darlin uh, did. You see, what we're going to see in this story is a Demas, a Gehazi, a Judas. Oh, it's a painful story. But it's, he's a guy who blew it. <laughs> Admiral Darlin, the self-assured. This guy is a powerful man at this time. He is uh, the Admiral of the Navy, the French Navy, which arguably is going to be in the top four. Okay, most powerful navies. And of course, according to Winston Churchill, he's the fourth. <laughs> and Winston Churchill knows his admiralty because he was the, admir the uh, minister of admiralty in Great Britain. So therefore, he knows what he's talking about. The total con in total control of the fourth strongest naval power 
in the world. So Winston Churchill, remember, this is, it, this is Great Britain talking now, and we have the Bordeaux collapse where the Patan government has betrayed France and is now going to talk with Hitler, begging his forgiveness for resisting, saying, please give us peace at all costs. Here, take France, take all our uh, soldiers, take all our land, take all of our strength. You use it however you want. We're behind you now, oh, Nazi government. It's like, what? What are you doing, Patan? Remember, there was two in France. There's this other side of France, like, duh. You don't capitulate. Let's fight even to the death. But you, we would die then. I don't care. Better to die than serve Hitler than become a puppet of evil. Come on, people, right? And so you have this split, and anyone that stood against Hitler in the government actually was then imprisoned. So there was a serious cost to actually standing up and saying, let's fight to the death. Let's stand against this. So in the closing days at Bordeaux, Admiral Darlin became very important. Why? Well, you see, once Hitler gains France, then the navy becomes a huge thing because that fourth most powerful navy in the world, if it joins with Italy's navy and it joins with Germany's navy, becomes stronger than Great Britain's navy. And so as a result, those ships better not fall into German hands. And so Admiral Darlin has all the power over them. And Admiral Darlin, I'm, I know I'm saying his name incorrectly. I sound like a Texas hick as I say Darlin. Uh, but that is sort of a fun way to say his name, though. Uh, however, he's in control of all these ships, which is why he becomes very, very important. As the end of the French resistance approached, he, Darlin, had repeatedly assured me that whatever happened, the French fleet should never fall into German hands. Okay, so this is, this is the key communication. Are you sure? All right, can we, can we verify that? We need to make sure that this uh, French fleet, because remember, this is their ally. France is their ally. You working with us or you working against us? And now suddenly Patan starts taking them. He's like, whoa, I don't think they're working with us right now. They're working against us. They're siding with Hitler. That Navy better not go with Hitler. So now at Bordeaux came the fateful moment in the career of this ambitious, self-seeking, incapable admiral. His authority over the fleet was, for all practical purposes, absolute. He had only to order the ships to British, American, or French colonial harbors. So June 17th, 1940, which is the, the critical day where we're going to see everything shift. We're going to see Patan take over the government. We're going to see Renault uh, driven out. And so June 17th, 1940... Darlin is going to be like, yes, we will move the naval fleet to safety far away from the control of Hitler. However, on June 18th, he's been doing some thinking. You can just sort of see Judas doing a little thinking. Seeing Demas, you know, it's like, hey, I can go this way. Seeing Gehazi doing a little thinking as he sees a few of those silver coins bounce out of the back of the cart. And he's like, hmm. And he's strategizing. He's coming up with a plan. And Darlin actually begins to come to the conclusion that he maybe shouldn't do what he told Great Britain that he was going to do because Great Britain's going down. If Great Britain is going to have its neck wrung like a chicken in three weeks, why would I want to work with them when I could find favor with Hitler, who's going to be the commander-in-chief of the entire world very soon? And so I think I'm going to throw my lot with Hitler. Woo, guys. Oh, my. Don't do this in your soul. There is a truth that you know. You know that that's evil. 
It's unquestionably evil. You know it's wrong. And you know what you should do. Darlin knew what he should do. In fact, he was adamant on it. These ships will never fall into Hitler's hands. And yet when it came down to it, and he had to choose for himself, not what was right, but for himself, he actually chose incorrectly. So here's Darlin. This is his inner thoughts. Hmm. What if I decided not to do this? If in three weeks Great Britain's neck will be wrung like a chicken, as Patton claims, then maybe appeasing Hitler would be the route with the most advantageous future. The next day, June 18, 1940, General Georges met Darlin in the afternoon and asked him what had happened. Darlin replied that he had changed his mind. When asked why, he answered simply, I am now Minister of Marine, which is different than Admiral. He is actually over in a governmental position, not in a military position, so he is going to change his position. He's, you know, he, he has some opportunities opened to him. By the way, this is not going to bring about a positive and favorable view from the French. Uh, <laughs> what he is doing is traitorous to the French. He is joining up with Bataan, who is joining up with Hitler, to stand against France. And so this becomes a very, very real threat for Great Britain in the war. So listen to Winston Churchill's ramblings on this. Winston Churchill is so deeply disturbed by this event <laughs> that he gives an undue amount of attention to this one man, this one admiral, and how he responds. And yet what you're going to see is everything that I've just said about Judas, about Gehazi, about Demas. It's like, just keep that in mind as you read this, and it's extremely fascinating to see what happens when you trade out an inheritance for a bowl of red stew. How vain are human calculations of self-interest. Rarely has there been a more convincing example. Darlin had but to sail in any one of his ships to any port outside of France to become the master of all French interests beyond German control. He would not have, have to come like General de Gaulle with only an unconquerable heart and a few kindred spirits. He would have carried with him outside the German reach the fourth navy in the world whose officers and men were personally devoted to him. Acting thus, Darlin would have become the chief of the French resistance with a mighty weapon in his hand. British and American dockyards and arsenals would have been at his disposal for the maintenance of his fleet. The French gold reserve in the United States would have assured him once recognized of ample resources. Of course, Darlin didn't know that there were French reserves. And there was piles of gold ready to support the resistance he didn't know about. He was looking at the gold over here and missed out. Oh, oh, I put the gold over here. He was looking at the jangling gold over here and missed out on the bullion of the king's cabinet. In other words, what God has supplied for us, what we trade out, oftentimes in the moment, we are losing sight of something far greater. The whole French empire would have rallied to him. Nothing could have prevented him from being the liberator of France. The fame and power which he so ardently desired were in his grasp. Instead, he went forward through two years of worrying an ignominious office to a violent death, a dishonored grave, and a name long to be execrated by the French Navy and the nation he had hitherto served so well. Well, uh, that's sort of a sad finish, and it is. But that's the same with any of us that choose the temporal over the eternal. This is our story. We become an Admiral Darlin. We become a Demos, a, a Gehazi, a Judas. When we choose the momentary pleasures, the momentary ease over the eternal value. A kingdom is set before us and it's eternal. And God's saying it's yours for the taking. Stand with me, stand true, stand faithful. 
Admiral Darlin, the Hitler puppet. He thought Great Britain was doomed, so he threw his lot in with Patan and Hitler to secure his future. So what this is going to unleash is what we could call Operation Catapult. Pretty cool. I almost called this message Operation Catapult, but uh, that took the focus off of what I wanted to emphasize. The French Navy must repent. That's basically what it is. Okay, so Great Britain at the time has the strongest navy in the world. Right across the English Channel and in the Mediterranean, you have some serious threats because Germany is coming into France and is now beginning to take hold of all of its military strength. It's taking its port cities, and even though the French are like, no, and they, they won't take our ships, well, Great Britain says, could we have the ships then? <laughs> we would like those ships under our care. We would like them to be docked somewhere else. We don't want them even close to the Germans, because if the Germans, the Germans lie all the time. I mean, Hitler, is everything he's ever said he was going to do, he didn't do it. Everything he promised, he breaks his promises. Just ask Stalin after the war, and you'll find that that's true. And so what you have is Operation Catapult. The British are like, the French are going to either repent or die. Doesn't that sound like the kingdom of heaven? It's like, you either repent of this position, or we're going to have to take you out. Why? For the kingdom. <laughs> For the sake of the kingdom. It's literally coming down to that where this is the hardest moment likely in, in Winston Churchill's entire life. Is when the day before, it, an ally, he has to actually threaten an ally and say, we need you to disarm those ships. We need you to take those ships away from the shores of France. And Darlin is playing games all of a sudden. And he's like, I don't know if I want to. And he's suddenly trying to entreat favor from Hitler. And Winston Churchill has to make a choice. July 3rd, 1940, Operation Catapult. So this is Winston Churchill's definition of Operation Catapult. Operation Catapult comprised the simultaneous seizure, control, or effective disablement or destruction of all the accessible French fleet. If it doesn't repent, we're going to have to take it out. And this is not what you want to do. You know how expensive a, a naval fleet is? An entire military arm of the fort? And this is like... Massive amounts. And there's troops on these ships that were your allies just yesterday. And so we're going to have to take them out. Please repent. Please. We're begging you. Repent. Turn from Hitler and come back. Doesn't this sound like the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. This is, this is like why World War II is so profound because at so many levels it is showcasing the same dynamics of the human soul. This was a hateful decision, the most unnatural and painful in which I have ever been concerned. The French had been only yesterday our dear allies, and our sympathy for the misery of France was sincere. On the other hand, the life of the state and the salvation of our cause were at stake. It was Greek tragedy. But no act was ever more necessary for the life of Britain and for all that depended upon it. Shortly after midnight, 108 a.m., July 2nd, talk about exact, Admiral Somerville was sent a carefully conceived communication to be made to the French admiral. So three options are given. The French Navy, one way or the other, will be demilitarized. That's what the British are saying. We will take care of these ships one way or the other. You can do it by doing it yourself, or we're going to do it for you. Okay, so this is the ultimatum that is given. So I, I put the British flag over here just to let you know where it's coming from. It's not just coming from Winston Churchill. This is coming from the nation of Great Britain to the Navy of France. The official message to the French Admiralty. A, option one. Sail with us and continue to fight for victory against the Germans 
and Italians. Sail with us. Join us. Be a, let's join together in league as a Navy. B, sail with reduced crews under our control to a British port. The reduced crews will be repatriated, which means returned to their country, at the earliest moment. If either of these courses is adopted by you, we will restore your ships to France at the conclusion of the war or pay full compensation if they are damaged meanwhile. Third option. C. Alternatively, if you feel bound to stipulate that your ships should not be used against the Germans or Italians unless they break these break the armistice. Remember, France has entered into an armistice with Germany. And one of the points of the armistice, with, which Great Britain isn't, doesn't know yet, doesn't know what has been dealt, what, what, has been, what the deal is, if it would violate their armistice to use their navy against them, well, then the, the Great Britain gets them another option. Then sail, uh, then sail them with us with reduced crews to some French port in the West Indies, like Martinique, for instance, where they can be demilitarized to our satisfaction or perhaps be entrusted to the United States and remain safe until the end of the war, the crews being repatriated. Now, what's interesting is this was a very clear communication to the French. And the, the Great, Great Britain went out of their way to try and make it as clear as possible so this wouldn't be confusing. The third option, Darlin did not communicate it to the French government. So only gave them the first two, which would have violated their treaty. So the, Fr the French couldn't do it without actually having greater problems with Hitler. So they're now vulnerable, but Darlin didn't give them the third option. And as a result, it forced an incredibly difficult situation for Great Britain to actually attack the country that was their ally. And you know how much use this could have been to them in World War II to take that navy? on their side, instead they need to destroy it. So this is a very difficult moment in history. This is still uh, the official message. If you refuse these fair offers, just imagine the gospel. If you refuse this fair offer, <laughs> your life which is sunk and going to hell anyways, I would like to come, says Jesus, and save you. <laughs> you must humble yourself, repent, and believe. If you would accept this fair offer, uh, <laughs> So if you refuse these fair offers, I must with profound regret require you to sink your ships within six hours. Finally, failing the above, in other words, if you do not listen to this, I have the orders of his majesty's government to use whatever force may be necessary to prevent your ships from falling into German or Italian hands. <laughs> Operation Catapult. And what's interesting is they would always take, they would come in by force onto the ship and then repeat this. They would, they would read this. And so they were like, hey, guys, we're trying to be reasonable. We don't want to harm you. But we will do whatever it takes to demilitarize these ships. And so in certain spots, uh, especially along uh, the, the coastlines of France, they actually gave in and say, oh, yeah, take the ship. But in the Mediterranean, they literally fought. And the British sunk. And I think it killed over 1,200 Frenchmen, French sailors in the process. So if you could just imagine what that would be like uh, to go through this. The Word of God. So this is going back to 2 Kings 5, which we're dealing with the story of Naaman. And remember, Gehazi is going to show up here. So Elisha, th those are our three characters. So Naaman is a Syrian, and he is high up in the military. And I'm going to give just this simple statement. And Naaman took with him 10 talents of silver, which is a lot of silver of great value, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing, which was valuable. Okay, that, that's very valuable, even though to us it's like 10 changes of clothing. 
And after being supernaturally healed from his leprosy, I'm skipping a huge part of the story, right? Where he bathes in the, in the river uh, seven times. He returned to the man of God and he and all his aides and came and stood before him. Naaman is going to say, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. It's interesting because there's going to be moments in all of our lives where the Syrian nation, which is hostile to the nation of Israel, which represents a different value system, is going to attempt to entreat us and to draw us into a compact with it. Now, for many of us, we can't figure out why Elisha wouldn't take the money. However, what you're going to see in the nation of Israel many times over is that refusal of allowing any other nation to take any credit for the establishment of the nation of Israel. It's like, no, I cannot touch your money. And Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. That's a pretty stout statement if you know how much money this guy's carrying right here. He's like, no, I will not receive a gift from you. And Naaman urged him to take it. This is our life. We are urged by the culture. Can't you feel it? No one actually comes up to us and says, really, you do need to give way to worldliness. That it isn't how it comes across. You need to compromise. You need to be politically correct. No one says that to us. It's implied. It urges us to compromise. And so as a result, there is something in here that we need to recognize because there's two in this story that are being urged. Elisha is going to say, but Elisha refused. But Gehazi didn't. Gehazi, as I picture him standing in the shadows, you know, and lurking uh, in the shadows and staring at the, uh, the chariot of Naaman and seeing the, the coins in the back, the changes of clothes. And obviously he knew it was there. The reason I'm going to say that is because when he goes to negotiate a deal with Naaman, he seems to know what's in that chariot. He's like, yeah, could I have uh, a couple talents of silver? How did he know that they had talents of silver? And could I have two changes of clothing? What a strange thing to ask for. You know what he could do with that? That would like set him up as a prince. I mean, that is like so much value. And he's asking, he's lying is what he's doing. Gehazi is going to lie. He is going to con to get this. Naaman's going to give it to him. He has it. Yeah, but he has it just like sin is pleasurable for a season. He has it for, oh, you know, maybe an hour. (laughs) And then he has leprosy for the rest of his life. Yeah, you could have riches, earthly riches. You could have earthly popularity, but you will have something else forever and always. However, you could give up certain things in this lifetime. And you could have eternal riches. The intimacy with the king of kings forever and always. Gehazi or Elisha. There's two in the story of how they're going to handle the riches of Naaman. And one is going to decide rightly, one is going to decide wrongly. Darlin or de Gaulle. Now, I introduced de Gaulle on Wednesday. De Gaulle is going to leave France, risking his life to go. He's going to go to London to hide. But ironically, that's not much of a hiding place because everyone in France knows and all the Germans are convinced, too, because even after the war, you can read all the German memorandums, and you can, you can hear that they were convinced that, that Great Britain is going down and quick. They do not have the defenses. They do not have the military strength to stand up against us. We're going to waylay them and silence them. If they don't enter into peace negotiations with us, they're doomed. So that's the German mind. That's the French mind. Everyone in the world, in fact, uh, Kennedy, the, uh, the diplomat from America, is going to go back to Franklin Roosevelt and say, yeah, they're not going to be able to stand this. It would be a failed 
uh, adventure uh, to stick our resources into a doomed country. It's just a waste of them. And so you're going to see everyone in the world believes Great Britain's going down. De Gaulle goes to Great Britain. That's where he goes to stand. He leaves his homeland. He leaves his country. He leaves everything behind to fight against the Germans. He's like, I don't care. I'm going to fight. I'm going where the people are ready to fight. In Great Britain, I believe at least they want to fight to the end. So I'm going to Great Britain. Well, right now in the Church of Jesus Christ, there might be a handful over here that are like, let's stand and let's fight for the truth. You have a whole bunch of people in the church like, let's just be quiet on these points. Let's capitulate on the issues of abortion. Let's capitulate on the issues of homosexuality. Let's not make an issue out of these things. Let's let the culture just slide off the ends of the earth. We don't need to go down with it. We'll like escape by, you know, through the flames maybe in the end. But let's play the game with them instead of standing against it and risking our lives. Are you a Darlin or a De Gaulle? Are you willing to leave everything, to risk and hazard everything in your life, to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to pull a Darlin? Darlin, it's so interesting because in the moment, I'm sure it looked intelligent. And he was given a high position in the Vichy government. The guy has power. So for all practical purposes, like this worked out pretty well. And he has the Nazi regime protecting him. Now, I mean, the most powerful military in the world is like preserving his little position. This is not a bad situation. And I mean, they're wicked people, yeah. And they asked him to do things that he didn't like. When they're saying, you need to collect all the Jews, you need to do all this, they're like, hey, I don't, we don't like this, but guess what? He's already, you know, he's risking his life now if he stands up. They'll, they'll kill him if he doesn't do what the Vichy government is supposed to do, which is exactly what the Nazi government is saying they should do. You come under the power of the world, you come under the power of Hitler, and it's not pleasant. Believe me, Darlin is miserable this entire time, which if I went into the full story, you'd understand, because in the end, he's going to try and get right with the Allies. He's actually going to, in his position, he's going to attempt to get things straight. He is not going to have the full satisfaction uh, of seeing anything turn out positive because the sad end to Admiral Darlin is December 24th, the day before Christmas of 1942, he is shot and killed by an angry Frenchman. It's an assassination uh, on Admiral Darlin. And these, the French do not like this man. So this is a revolutionary that says, how dare you? How dare you represent us as the French? You have sold us out. And so this uh, Frenchman, he, this guy's going to be uh, the, the guy who kills him, I, I, it is a long name, uh, is going to be put before a firing squad two days later and killed. But Admiral Darlin, as most people in the world would have said, well, he got what was due him. That, that's how most people thought about it. I mean, no one's crying over the, the loss of Admiral Darlin, one of the greatest leaders in his generation. I mean, he was like a heroic leader up to that point, and then he sold himself out. Jesus Christ very simply puts it, and by the way, this is said multiple times in multiple ways in the New Testament by Jesus. He says this one line over and over and over again. It's like each of the gospels seems to have their own take on it. The same, same phrase. It's like, hey, did you hear what Jesus said? When, when something is repeated once, or just said once in scripture, it matters. When something is repeated and it's twice, oh, take note. That's like a huge underline, highlight. When it said three times, four times, five times, six times, I don't know what this is, like six or seven times it said, I think we should take note of it, right? I think that we have about as big of a highlighter pen that God has in his kingdom, and he's scribbling over it, circling it, 
arrows to it saying, this is where you find it, right here. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Darlin tried to save his life. Patan tried to save their lives, and they lost them. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's an exchange. You see, what I want you to see as we are finishing a semester is the clear line in the sand that exists in your life. You can't straddle it. You need to choose where you stand. Darlin hated the Nazis. He did. But he didn't trust the British. So as a result, when it came down to it, he chose himself. That was where he went. What you need to do is you need to hate evil, but you need to trust God. You need to trust that he will carry you. As you stand for him, he will do the defending. Do you remember Mary of Bethany? Mary of Bethany is assaulted twice. Now, it sounds funny to say assaulted. Verbally assaulted. Martha picks on her and says, Lord, will you not correct her? Look at her. She's sitting in there you know, at your feet. I'm busy taking care of everything here in the kitchen. Mary never speaks on her own behalf. Jesus speaks for her. And then do you remember the other time where she's breaking open spikenard and Judas is actually going to be the one going, hey, that was a waste. Could have given that to the poor. Uh, He actually wasn't interested in the poor. He was interested in that going into his own pocket. He didn't like seeing the waste of that. And yet Mary doesn't defend herself. Jesus defends her. Are you willing to stand up for Jesus and let him be your defense? Let him be your front and your rear guard. It will cost you. You know, the, it's, it's a fascinating statement, just as a conclusion. I have lost a lot in my life because I have stood for truth. And yet, if you were to ask me, like, you know, say off record, off record, Eric, do you regret doing that? You could have had this, you could have had this, you could have had this, you could have had this. Not one bit. This is a true statement. I do not regret giving up this world, the pleasures of this world, to gain what I have found in the kingdom of heaven. What I have found in the kingdom of heaven is full of challenge, full of trial, full of drama, full of ridiculousness at times. It's like, I can't believe that I have to deal with this stuff, that other people don't have to. It's like I've always said, everyone in life has challenges because we live in a world of sin. They're just there. Walk down the road, you can run into a challenge, right? But a Christian gets bonus. A Christian gets bonus challenges. And so when you choose to forsake the world and you enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's like, I sign up for bonus challenges. Yeah, but you also get bonus grace. (laughs) You get bonus power. You get all that is necessary and needed to be able to live with more challenges. In fact, it's greater. You have a super abundance for all those challenges, right? So you actually come out on paper better. If you're a Christian leader, you get bonus, bonus challenges because Satan is going to always look, if you study the underground church in in China, it's very fascinating when it comes to the bonus, bonus because the enemy uh, in in China, when they're they're trying to silence the church, they're looking for the heads. They want to know who's leading this thing and that's who they're arresting. So you get the bonus, bonus when you stick your head up above everyone and go, okay, I'm in charge. Who's in charge here? I am. <laughs> Do I really want to say that? <laughs> because the bullet goes right there. 
to the person who's dumb enough to be a leader in the bonus bonus category. It's like, why would anyone do that? Is it challenging? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm guessing it would be challenging to win a gold medal in the Olympics, too. You know, if you ask someone who trains six hours a day, is that easy? No, it's not easy. Is it rewarding? Yeah. In an earthly sense. Well, ask me the same thing. See, I'm not going to win a gold medal in this life, and I don't get applause, and no one sings the national anthem at any point in my life and sticks their hand over their heart and cries when I do anything in life. So I have to forsake something in this side of earth. But there is something so rewarding that you cannot put a value on, that beats all of Naaman's treasury in the back of his chariot. But the only way to get that is you have to give up Naaman's chariot. You have to let it drive off and say, adios, I'm not following after you with any trickery or any con job. I want Jesus. But you don't have any uh, gold coins or any silver talents, Eric, and no changes of clothes here. I have Jesus. And by the way, that's better than all that is in that chariot, multiplied by billions and billions and billions. Father, I ask that you would properly calibrate our souls and our thinking to see you and to see your value, to recognize who you are and what you've done for us, and to recognize that the things of this world must grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, may we behold you today. May this finishing touch today of our final session in this five-week semester be perfect. May it be choreographed by you that we would end in style with a clear picture of how to follow you from here for your glory, honor, and praise. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.